This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So I want to start with a question. Why do you bother reading your Bible? For real, like why do you read it? Um, why do you open this book and read, read the words on these pages? What is, it, what is it you're really hoping to gain and get out of this whole thing? I think, there, I think there's a lot of reasons we do it. Um, oftentimes, I think, if we're honest, we read out of obligation. Uh, maybe not all the time, but sometime. Thinking it, we do it because we have to. This is, what, this is what mature Christians do, sort of just checking it off the list so you don't feel guilty. Other times, I think we, we can be prone to read the Bible as, as a form of status symbol so that we can show off how much we've read, how much we know, how much we've memorized. Many times we'll, we'll read the Bible in order to justify, justifying what it is that we think our way of living and reading to condemn someone else's way of thinking and someone else's way of thinking, in a sense, just making the Bible nothing more than ammunition to fire at someone else. Sometimes we read in hopes of finding solutions to problems, and we, we treat the Bible uh, like a magic eight ball, and, and, and we shake it up, and we, we put our finger in a page, and we're like, what does verse 22 tell me? Hoping that that, that is some sort of magical sword drill is going to tell you what it is you're supposed to do, that next step to take, who you're supposed to be with, where you're supposed to go. Sometimes we treat it as a, as a roadmap. And thinking that the Bible, it details exactly what will happen when. Uh, and, uh, this sort of speculative way of reading, especially uh, prophecy as prediction, and especially the book of Revelation, thinking that it lays everything out in detail. If we can just Dan Brown this thing and crack the code, we're going to figure it out. Other times we read it like a, like a fable or a nursery rhyme, looking for the moral at the end of the story, or that, that hero that, that we are to emulate, thinking, if I had the faith of David, I could slay the giants in my life. Looking for that, that bit of inspiration to tackle the day. And, and hear me, we should read the Bible more regularly, amen? And I don't know if I needed to say that, um, but I wanted to make sure we got that. And, and, and God's word most definitely should shape and guide our lives. But those, um, those reasons I gave you, they are not why we read the Bible. Because each of those reasons is rooted in a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. It, may, it makes the Bible about us as though we are somehow the central character, reducing the Bible to nothing more than a tool or a resource to sit on our shelf to, to take out only when needed. It's like it's sitting behind a plate of glass that you break only in the event of an emergency. And what I hope you, you come to see in your time with us, as we spend time together in, in the pages of this book each and every Sunday, is that the Bible is a story, isn't it? It is one cohesive story. It's a true story, and it's a really good story. It is a, a story of, of redemption. It has every act and piece that a good story has. But the story, it's not about us, is it? No, the story is about God, the author of the story. A story that reveals who God is, a story that reveals what God has done, and a story that reveals all that God will do. And it's a story 
that reveals how we, as his people, as his children, are to live, how we are to live in relation to God, how we are to live in relation to others, and how we are to live in relation to all of creation. And so as we continue our series, The Measure of Maturity, this morning, I want us to see both why it is we read this book and what it is this book is, what it is we're reading. Reading a book that is about God and reading a book that deepens our awareness and affection and love for God, knowing that love is the true measure of maturity, at least the way Jesus defines it. Our living out the great commandment of loving God and loving others. Because if the command is to love, Jesus is saying in John 13, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another just as I love you. If love is the command, then love should be the measure of maturity. Jesus is saying by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so last week, as we began the series, it was about a greater desire to be with God. Right, thirsting for his presence in, in Psalm 63. And this morning is about a greater desire to hear from God, hungering for his word here in this passage that Ben read in Deuteronomy 8. And in this passage, uh, De- Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that, that Moses preached to the people of Israel before they entered the promised land of Canaan. And in this passage, it comes towards the end of the second sermon. And he gives the people two commands in the opening two verses of this passage, telling them what it is they are to do. And then he follows the what with the why, explaining why it is they were to do that. God does that a lot, doesn't he? He doesn't just tell us what. He gives us the why behind the what. And so the first command that Moses gives God's people here in verse 1 is to obey what God has said. Obey what God has said. And so he begins in verse 1 saying, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. Now Moses, as as God's prophet, he's, he's speaking on behalf of God as though this is God himself speaking. And he says that they they were to be careful. They were to pay attention uh, to obey the entirety of what he has said, the whole commandment, not not picking and choosing what aspects they wanted to obey, obey what aspects they agreed with, what worked for them at that time in their life. Because he wanted them to see that God had given them these commands for their own good and how their obedience would lead to their flourishing. He goes on to say, obey what God has said, that you may live and multiply, increasing in number as a people, and go into the land and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, this land that God had promised to Abraham some 500 years ago. And we start to see here that that God created us to live a certain way, didn't he? A way that is best for us, a way that leads to our flourishing. That's that's what you do when you create something. You you design it to function a certain way. If you were to create a new game, uh, you, you create rules of the game that lead to the enjoyment of those playing, or at least those who are winning at the game. The losers might not enjoy it so much. Uh, When you create a new law, and I have an asterisk in my notes, when you create a law in a fair and just society, you create it for the protection and benefit of the entire society, at least in theory. And when you create a a tool or a piece of technology, you create it to complete a certain task a certain way. For example, um, there are Phillips head screwdrivers. They got an X on the top. And you got regular screwdrivers. It's just a blade on the top. Two different screwdrivers, 
made for two different types of screws to be turned in a very certain way. Your Phillips head screwdriver will not work in a flathead screw. That's just the type of practical, helpful advice we like to provide here in our sermons. That is also the extent of my knowledge of tools. (laughs) But God, as creator, he and he alone knows what is best for his creation. He knows better than we do. And having created us, he created us to function in a certain way, a way that allows not just his people, but all of his creation to flourish. And what I love is that God doesn't have unspoken or unconscious expectations of us as his people. We do. Oftentimes, we don't tell people what it is we expected them. God didn't do that. God didn't leave us guessing at what it is he expected of us. No, he, he told us how we were to live, revealing the way in which we are to live in relation to himself, in relation to others, in relation to creation. God, and he, he spoke to Adam and Eve, telling them, like, all these trees out there, the fruit of all these trees, man, it is good. You go and you eat away. But that one, not that one. He, he didn't leave them guessing. He told them. God, he spoke to Israel, telling them how their society should function under the old covenant Mosaic law in order for them to flourish as a nation, as, as people set apart from all others, as a, as a light to the nations. But he also told them how going against his way would lead to their destruction as a nation. And God spoke to us. He spoke to us through his son, showing us how to live. Showing us how to live, not not as a, a nation state with all people who live within its borders governed by old covenant Mosaic law. That wasn't what was happening. No, he he showed us how to live as his new covenant people, as the church, as Christ's bride, as Christ's body, living in a way that brings glory to God and good to others, by living out our love for God and our love for others, living in a way that that, that brings about blessing, not, not to any one single country above all, but to all of creation, obeying what God has said, obeying every word faithfully following the way of Jesus and obedience to the words of Jesus, as we say here. Words that we need to read in order to obey them, in order to know them, in order to live by them and be formed by them. And so we were to obey what God has said. The second commandment that Moses gives here in verse two is that they were to remember what God had done. They remember what God had done. He begins in verse two saying, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. You know, last week we talked about about how to respond when you find yourself in in the wilderness. There were were five steps, if you remember. It was uh, remembering where you're headed, recognizing why you're headed there, reflecting on who it is you're headed toward. That is that we are headed towards God and then responding one foot in front of the nor- another, leading us to God, and then finally rejoicing in his presence. But then what? What do you do once you find yourself out of the wilderness? And like oftentimes, we, um, we like to just forget all about that, don't we? Trying to suppress every thought that we had about it, suppress every motion, and, and when it comes up, we squash it back down again. And we, and we treat it like it never happened. Like we, just, we try and delete it from the hard drive altogether. 
And the thing is, is that by doing so, we lose all memory of God's presence with us. We lose all memory of God's faithfulness to us, having formed us in the midst of the wilderness. And when we forget all that God has done, when we forget his past faithfulness, we lose trust in his continued faithfulness, don't we? I, um, I've had some moments of wilderness as of late. And uh, to be honest, I would just assume forget it all and just move past it because uh, it'd be a whole lot easier. And, but to do so, to just jump past it and put it in the rearview mirror, it would, it would be to forget that God is ever present with me and faithful in the midst of it. It would be to forget the way that you are formed in the midst of it. And it would be to lose hope in God's continued faithfulness to lead through the wilderness. That there's another side to this. And so that's why Moses called the people not to forget any of what God had done, remembering the whole way God had led them. So they wouldn't forget that he was with them every moment of every day, faithful every, every step of the way. That's why they celebrated the feast of the Passover each and every year, so that they would remember God's presence with them and his faithfulness to them in the wilderness and not forget and that's why we see throughout Scripture, we see the story of the Exodus told and alluded to over and over and over again so that we would not forget God's presence with his people and his faithfulness to his people. And that's why it is so important for us to read the stories that make up this story, the story, a true story, a really good story of redemption. A story that shows us who God is. God who is forever faithful. A story that reminds us of God's past faithfulness and a story that reminds us of God's continued faithfulness to fulfill his promises. Right, we read what God has said to remember what God has done. And that alone is enough reason, isn't it? That's enough why behind the what. We could pack up, go home right now. But uh, Ben came up here and he read another 18 verses. So we gotta do something with them. There's some good in there. So let's keep going. You good with that? So what we see in the rest of this passage, what we see is we see what remembering all that God has done, we see what remembering leads to. And then in the last paragraph, we see what forgetting all has, God has done leads to. Remembering and forgetting. And so here's what remembering God has done leads to, what it, what, what it does, what it reveals about God and what it reveals about us. As Moses, he shares five results here of remembering what God has done. And the first is this. Remembering what God has done, it leads to our faithfulness to God. Right? It leads to our faithfulness. Look at verse 2 again. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that so that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The wilderness has a tendency to reveal what remains hidden, to bring something out of the darkness and into the light. It reveals what you actually believe to be true about God. And it's revealed in your response to his past faithfulness. If you will continue to trust him or if you will reject him and go your own way. And when we remember how God has been with us, when we remember how he has led us through in the past, that builds our trust that he will continue to do the same, doesn't it? 
Later on in verse six, he says, so as a result of, of remembering what God has done, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, obeying all that he has said by walking in his ways, living in the way God created and called us to live, a way of faithful obedience, and by fearing him, revering him. It leads to our faithfulness to God. Number two, um, remembering what God has done, it leads to our gratitude to God. It leads to gratitude. He, he begins in verse three. He says, and he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. He, um, he's reminding him here of the story of Exodus 16. God miraculously providing food for his people in the, in the midst of this barren wasteland that they were traveling in. Uh, it reminds me of when you are traveling through the barren wasteland of rural Illinois or Iowa and you come across a Casey's. And you're wondering if it's a mirage, is this too good to be true? And you step inside this Casey's, and there is some of the most glorious gas station pizza ever known to man. It's true. So what God did is, is he, it says he rained down bread from heaven. And, and not like, remember that movie, Claudia with a Chance of Meatballs? It's not like that. It wasn't like French baguettes raining down out of the sky. No, it was, um, it was this fine, flaky bread that was known as manna. And, and it was left on the ground after the dew dried in the morning. And, and what he says here is like, God, God was doing something he'd never done before. He was doing something not even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had seen. He was doing something that only God could do. And remembering God's past provision over the last 40 years of their lives, it led to a sense of gratitude. And, and not only remembering how God had, had fed them, but later on in verse four, how, how he had clothed them. It says, your clothing did not wear out on you. Think about it. They were wearing the same outfits for 40 years as far as we know, and they never wore out. The, the boys didn't wear holes in the knees of their jeans, climbing on all the rocks out there. He clothed them. He cared for them. It says, your foot did not swell even though they were walking in circles in the desert for 40 long years. And they weren't wearing a new pair of brooks or hookahs. They were, they were walking around in sandals or barefoot as far as we know. The reason we need to remember, though, is because we are so prone to forget. We forget the, some things, and we remember the wrong things often, though. Remembering what we feel God has withheld from us while forgetting all that he's provided us. And rather than leading to gratitude, that leads to grumbling, doesn't it? And, and so one of the ways that we regularly set aside time for gratitude is through one of the spiritual practices known as examine, uh, a practice that we looked at a year ago in our series, uh, the spiritual rhythms of the Psalms in Psalm 139. And the idea of examine is to end each day by reflecting on God's presence and faithfulness throughout the day. It's a, it's a practice that we've incorporated into the way. In fact, one of our groups is actually doing it right now over this two-month session. And, and if you're interested in learning more about Examine, after, um, after the, uh, the sermon today, when we post the sermon on the website on our sermon page, uh, I'll include a guide in the sermon notes that you can download and, and practice yourself. And so it leads to gratitude. Number three, though, remembering what God has done, at least to recognizing our dependence on God. Right? We, re we recognize our dependence on God. He's reminding them that humanity does not live by bread alone. 
Um, I, you know my love of baguettes. I talk about that about as much as I talk about Alice. And, uh, but this isn't just about French baguettes with like a, a dish of oil and seasoning to dip it in and uh, maybe some prosciutto and olives with it. Like, and at this point, we've, we've built a charcuterie tray. We're just missing like the dried apricots and the brie and then we're good to go. I'm hungry right now. And I think that's kind of the point. Because we, we, we know that hunger. There weren't any, were there donuts in the lobby today? I didn't go out because I was hiding in my office because I don't know how to be around y'all without hugging you. And I didn't want to hug you today. So like, some of you, you came up and you're like, no, 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 no. I was like, I love you. I just, because I love you, I'm not hugging you. Anyway, because there weren't donuts, you, your tummy's starting to growl a little bit. You get a little hungry. God wants to recognize that while food is necessary, he doesn't say bread doesn't matter, but we don't live by bread alone. It's necessary for the physical nourishment of our bodies to, but we don't live by bread alone because there is an even deeper hunger within us, one that only God can satisfy. A hunger not just to live, but to truly be alive, revealing our dependence on God, revealing our dependence on all that has come from the mouth of God. Our very existence dependent on what came from the mouth of God. God having spoken all of creation into existence with words, including ourselves. God breathing life into us, his breath animating us. Our way of living dependent on, on the spoken word of God, on his covenants and his commands and his promises. And our salvation dependent on the living word of God, his son, Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection his ascension to the Father, and his promised return. We are dependent on all that comes from the mouth of God. And number four, remembering what God has done, it leads to appreciating God's love. It leads to appreciating God's love. He says in verse five, he says, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, as a, as a parent disciplines their child, the Lord your God disciplines you. I think we have different reactions when we hear that word discipline, depending on how you were raised, your work environment, your past. Um, because I think we've experienced that not all discipline is done out of love, is it? Some's done out of anger towards you. Some done um, by those being disappointed in you. Done to shame and humiliate you, to tear you down rather than to build you up. And, and that can make it harder to see God's discipline as loving, can't it? And yet what I need you to know is that this God who is himself love, when he steps in and he disrupts your life, when you've wandered away and you've drifted off course, it is always done out of love. It, it is done to grab your attention and to draw you back to him. I, um, I typically will read through a, a sermon each morning. I'm about to finish a book of sermons by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in, in the one that I read this morning on love, he writes this. He says, when I was hostile toward God because of God's commandments, meaning not obeying what God has said, God dealt with me as one would with a friend. When I committed evil against God, God did only good to me. God didn't make an accounting of my evil, but looked for me tirelessly and without bitterness. He goes on to say, the father had found his child again. And he reflects, saying, I don't understand why God loves me so much, why I was so precious to the Almighty. Regardless of what you faced in this life, God's discipline is always out of love. 
And number five, remembering what God has done, it leads to our worship of God. It leads to worship. It says, if you've obeyed all that God has said, living in the way he's created and called you to live, he tells the people before they cross into the land that they would flourish as Moses reminded them of what God was about to do, fulfilling these promises he had made to Abraham, bringing them into not just a land, but a good land, a land of brooks and fountains and springs flowing in the valleys, right? an oasis in the desert with water that sustains life. It is a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive trees and honey. He is filling the charcuterie tray in this land. That is a good land, Amen. And it is a land in which you eat bread without scarcity. There's nothing worse than going to Mariano's and all the baguettes are gone. That doesn't happen here, he says. They will be lacking nothing, eating until they were filled and satisfied. A land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can, you can dig copper. God, providing them with the natural resources necessary for them to develop into a prosperous nation. God, he was going to do all of that for them, blessing them, and that would lead them to worshiping God. This heart of gratitude, responding in joyous worship. And Moses says, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now, we as people under the new covenant need to read this carefully. While the promise of land and a great nation was made to specific people at a specific time, uh, to God's people under the old covenant, that, that promise was not made to us. But when we read these stories, we are reminded that God is forever faithful, amen? God is forever faithful, faithful to fulfill every promise he has ever made. And remembering his past faithfulness, it leads us to trust in his continued faithfulness, worshiping God and God alone because God alone is worthy. That's what remembering all God has done leads to. And now he shows us in the second paragraph what forgetting all that God has done leads to, showing us three results here of forgetting. And number one, he says, uh, forgetting what God has done, it leads to our disobedience. It leads to our disobedience. He, he says in verse 11, he says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Now, while God's desire is for us to live a certain way, a, a way that promotes the flourishing of all creation, this, this sense of shalom permeating every aspect of it, that shalom was shattered when creation rebelled against its creator. Forgetting this forest of trees filled with fruit and focusing on that one tree that they were told not to eat. And when we go our own way, outside the way God created and called us to live, for forgetting what he has said, we join in that rebellion. And our action or inaction declaring creation knows better than its creator. No longer believing that God knows what is best for us, I do. No longer trusting God desires what is best for us and instead believing the lie that he is withholding something, something good from us, something I deserve, something I have earned. Forgetting what God has done, it leads to our disobedience. Number two, forgetting what God has done, it fills us with pride. It fills us with pride. He warns that um, when they entered the land God had given them, a land that sounds really almost too good to be true, as they began to flourish, just as he said, having, having eaten their stomachs full, uh, having built fine homes, herds of cattle and flocks of sheep growing, pockets filled with silver and gold, 
that they may very well forget the Lord, their God, and all the incredible ways that he provided for them. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking like, like, how could you ever forget God breaking you out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery? How could you forget that? 400 years. I've been sick for four days, and it feels like, I don't know how I'm ever forget when God breaks me out of this. How could you forget that? How could you forget God leading you through what he says, a massive, terrifying wilderness, a 40-year-long haunted house is effectively what he's saying. And if you don't believe me, what comes next? It's a haunted house filled with snakes and scorpions, right? This is like an Indiana Jones movie here. 40 years of that. I don't forget a snake dream, yet alone 40 years of snakes. And not only that, it was a land completely void of any water. So what did God do? He made water flow from a rock. You ever seen that happen? Mm-mm. Completely void of food. So you know what he did? Boom. Bread appeared out of nowhere. You ever seen that happen? No. We haven't. How could you forget that? Pride. That's how. He said back in verse 14 that their hearts would be lifted up. They would be puffed up, filled with pride. And so he warns them in verse 17. He says, beware, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Thinking that whatever blessing you've experienced is all the result of your own doing. Your strength having built this, your ability having accomplished this. What we see here is how prosperity can so easily lead to pride. It leads to forgetting That's true in our individual lives, but it's also true in our thinking that I did it, but it's also true in our corporate lives, thinking we built this, our corporate lives as a church even. And it's especially true after an extended time of wilderness, thinking I got myself out of that. We got ourselves through that. It'd be easy to come out of the pandemic thinking that, that the growth of our love for God and others and all the things that we've, that we've begun to do over these last couple of years, it was all the result of our doing, our power, our wisdom, our experience, our ability. And that couldn't be any further from the truth, could it? Because it was all God's doing, wasn't it? Everything. And that's why it's so important that we remember all that he's done. For it is he who gives you not just the power to gain wealth, but the ability to create, the ability to do anything, the ability to love. None of this for our own glory, but for his glory. That he may confirm his old covenant promises that he swore to their ancestors and fulfill the new covenant promises that he has made to us. And so that's why we do things like setting aside time on New Year's Sunday to reflect on God's faithfulness over the last year. That's why we set aside time last Sunday before the sermon to celebrate God providing $109,000 to above and beyond this year through your generosity to help replace this leaky roof. That's why we set aside time each Sunday at the end of our service for you to share a prayer request with us as pastors and elders. And what that does is it is like a prayer journal. We can look back over time remembering God's continued faithfulness. But when we forget what God has done, it fills us with pride thinking we did it. And number three, finally, uh, forgetting what God has done, it ultimately leads to our destruction. It leads to our destruction. He says in verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God, and you forget all that he has done and all that he has said, 
And instead, you go after God, thinking they will give you what God has withheld from you. Those things that you desire, that you think are good and deserving, be it power or wealth or happiness, a relationship, health or comfort, whatever it is. And you serve them, turning to them and trusting in in whoever will give you whatever it is you want, bowing down to them and sacrificing whatever they ask on their altar. And he says, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Your idolatry leading to your own destruction. And, And he's not speaking to individuals here. He's speaking to a people. As a nation under the old covenant and as the church under the new covenant, which I think is a, is a rather timely reminder for us. Because, you know, something, um, something the church has excelled at, I was thinking, you know, the church has excelled in this for the last eight years. No, in the 1900s it did. Eight. Something the church has excelled in for 2,000 years, footnote, the church has been around for 2,000 years, is fear-mongering. We're really good at fear-mongering, aren't we? We're really good at pointing at boogeymen. Declaring that some boogeyman out there in the world is the single greatest threat to the church if we don't take it out. And you know, it's gotten to the point, I can't even keep up with the evangelical church's latest, greatest supposed boogeyman out there. They're coming so fast anymore. And what I think we see here and throughout scriptures that the greatest threat to the church, it's not out there, it's in here, isn't it? It's us. And he, he closes in verse 20 saying, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Our failure to obey all that God has said and our failure to remember all that God has done, that's the threat. Jesus said not even the gates of hell will stand against the church. And that's why it's so important that we We spend time with God regularly reading this incredible story. Reading to to remind ourselves of who God is, that he is faithful. Of all God has done, his past faithfulness, and all that God has promised to do, giving us hope and trust in his continued faithfulness. Reading so that we know how it is that we are to live in relation to God, in relation to others, in relation to all of creation expressing our love for God. How? By obeying what he has said and remembering what he has done. And that love that we have for God as it grows, our love for others will grow in pursuit of the flourishing of all of creation. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.